0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 10th. This is Open Line, I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program this morning. Just a very quick programming note. There will not be an open line tomorrow. Brian O'Connell is going to bring you a Remembrance Day special. So if you are considering getting on the program in the next day or two, well, today is the day. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 2735211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. Well, it was really quite pleasant out a little while ago when I stepped out to have a look around. Looks like it's graying today, but not tray bad. A uh, quick check in on Gander golfer, professional golfer Blair Bursey, down trying to qualify for the PGA Tour in Latin America. He was, ta- he was in second place after day one yesterday. He's now shot, well, he shot a 73. He's tied for sixth. He needed to stay in the top 12 to get a spot on that tour and a quick sporting note it was today in what year let's see here today in 1991 Martina Navratilova, of course the Czech pro tied Chris Everett with 157 pro tournament wins so that was in 91 but get a load of some of the numbers that Martina Navratilova, the great Martina Navratilova, put up she's won 18 major singles titles 31 major women's doubles titles 10 major mixed doubles titles for a combined total of 59 majors the most by a long shot in the open era. She won 167 top level singles titles 177 doubles titles both records for the open era she was ranked number one for two, or pardon me, she was number one in singles for 332 weeks that second only behind Steffi Graf and for a record th- 237 weeks in doubles the only player in history to have the top spot in both disciplines for over 200 weeks. The amazing Martina Navratilova. Okay. Quick check in here. This is a great story. Do you know who Morgan McDonald is? Morgan McDonald is a sculptor. He's got a foundry, I think it's maybe in Outer Cove. It's Outer Cove, Middle Cove, it's down in that area. I was in his studio one day participating in one of the projects which was called 100 Portraits of the Great War and that's displayed in Victoria Park and I was representing my grandfather, the late Stephen Nearing. The work he does in bronze is absolutely extraordinary. So whether that be that piece in Victoria Park or at Government House, the Nonia 100th Anniversary piece, or the Homecoming in Bannerman Park, the William Lyon Mackenzie King piece, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Memorial, which is in Moncton to commemorate the lives lost of the members of the RCMP, the caribou at the Memorial uh, Pavilion in St. John's, my favourite, I think, is the rower down around Kitty Biddy Lake, and then on and on it goes. Out in Ellison at the cedar Sculpture, he did one for Fortis, where once they stood another caribou and again just it goes on and on and on he now has been commissioned to do what he seems to and sounds like very excited to do and he's a major rush fan of course iconic uh, canadian progressive rock band rush which i also love so the drummer for that band, Neil Peart, or Neil Pert, as some people say, he's from St. Catharines in Ontario. He has now passed away, and they're going to put up a couple of monuments to Neil Peart in that community. So Morgan, one of many artists around the country, maybe around the world, put forward their proposal to be commissioned to put those two pieces in place. And he won. He got it absolutely amazing stuff. So there's gonna be two pieces. One of a young Neil Pert reading a book and one of an older Neil Pert sitting on what is resemblant of a throne. Because even just a little stool that drummers will sit on, they'll call it the drummer's throne. So I haven't seen the pictures. I did hear them on with Anthony yesterday. It was a really excitable interview. But I think it's safe to say, Morgan MacDonald may be one of the very finest artists that this province has ever produced. Of course, we think about the notables the Gerald Squires of the world and the Pratts, and Grant Bowlin and others. And they're absolutely at the very top of their field. But in the work of sculpting, amazing stuff that Morgan MacDonald has done. And congratulations. He's obviously thrilled as a big Rush fan, but also to put another one of his pieces in a different part of the country. This time in St. Catharines. Well, I think it's Lakeview or Lakeshore Park or something. Anyway, congratulations to Morgan. Great story. Okay. It's hard to know what to talk about off the top of this program that will provoke your interest and potentially your call. And this kind of stuff is pretty heady, but it's pretty important. So, starting into the war against the cyber attackers, the nuisances, the folks who infiltrate your computers, plant the malware or the ransomware, it was in 2011, in Estonia, the FBI arrested six Estonians, they were part of a cyber crime ring, they made millions upon millions of dollars in fraudulent advertising, it was one of the largest takedowns of cyber crime syndicates in history. And it just proceeds from there. There's lots of interesting stories out there. But let's see if we can piece a couple together. And I know, look, price of fuel and doctors and all that, it's important. And we can absolutely talk about it. Sometimes this goes by the wayside because it is clandestine. And unless it impacts you, it probably isn't something you think about. There's also a story that's been revisited in the news today. It was back from January 27 of 2021. It was... The police, on the behest of the FBI, they took down a former government IT analyst who had turned hacker. His name was 33-year-old Sebastian Vachon Desjardins. So he was the renowned user ID 128. At the same time that they were arresting Mr. Vachon Desjardins in Gatineau, there was a process ongoing in Bulgaria to take down a computer server. So he went from being a government IT specialist to working with Netwalker, one of the largest cyber attack and criminal organizations fueled and funded by Russia. Here's what they found when they made their way into his house. The RCMP found $300,000 in cash in a shoebox, The keys to safety deposit box with $400,000 in cash, cell phones, computers, and hard drives. They say there was enough terabytes of data to fill a hockey arena if it was printed out. He also had security keys to crypto wallets holding a current value of $21 million U.S. in Bitcoin. So there you go. He was in the government, then turned hacker. And here's where the story goes where I think it gets maybe even a little bit over my head. But, you know, this is not about Russia, 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 or what have you. But if you try to piece together some of the stories we've heard from different members of the federal cabinet, the federal liberal cabinet, you come to understand that we are not as protected as we need to be regarding our national security. And most of this story is about China. Let's turn uh, the dial back some 12 years. The fellow who was then the director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, his name was Richard Fadden, and this is 12 years ago. He said at that point, at least two provincial cabinet ministers and several municipal politicians were more or less uh, puppets of the People's Republic of China. And he says pretty much that this is ongoing and we're not able to defend ourselves. Let's go back 10 years. Anthony Campbell, he was the former head of the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat of the Privy Council. He said this, we're sitting ducks. We don't have the capacity to deal with the potential for detrimental impact from bad foreign actors and which will have, of course, an impact on Canada's security. Now fast forward, and we're now told, and this is a leaked document, back in January this year, the Trudeau government was given a note, briefing notes from CSIS, looking at how Beijing had funded 11 candidates in the 2019 federal election, had actually placed operatives on the campaign staff in various offices, $250,000 funded by China's Toronto consulate. Go back again, and there's examples of where the Chinese had not only infiltrated provincial and municipal politics, but now we see this note. And how important would that be? We are woefully undermanned, understaffed with when it comes to intelligence and counterintelligence in this country. And why it's a big deal is because we have enough problems inside our own democracy. And when foreign bad actors infiltrate and or fund discord, it makes it bad for every single Canadian, regardless of your political leanings or stripe. So the issue that Trudeau's government has been sitting on now, is that they attempted, and the Chinese were effective in putting forward all kinds of disinformation that negatively impacted conservative party candidates on the federal scene, but they were going after both parties. So this is really, you know, I know, I get it. It's really heady stuff, and it doesn't impact your day-to-day life, we don't think, but the more and more discord based on purposefully planted disinformation by countries like China or Russia or Iran does indeed, whether we like it or not, impact our day-to-day lives because it impacts the operations of government. Then you look at some of the stories that have been sprinkled in the recent past. There was the move made by the federal government to force China to divest their interest in three different companies that were dealing with critical minerals. We know how valuable they are. China doesn't have them, so what they do is they produce them in other parts of the world, bring them back to China, secondary, tertiary processing, make one product or another, and sell it to the world. And they have been the world's number one player on that front. Then you hear Melanie Jolie just the other day warning Canadian businesses about doing operations and business in China and to go in there with your eyes wide open. So as much as we feel like these things don't really matter, they really, really do. So when you put them all together and you wonder how and why the government has been so blasé about this stuff – You know, is it legal advice or don't poke the bear or to quietly ramp up intelligence and counterintelligence in this country? But I think when you look at all these things and the hacking, and you know, even something as fundamental as the CRA scam that's making its way around again. And that was a dangerous one. It's a text scam. It ends up in your cell phone, and many people who are waiting for their $500 check may be fooled into clicking that link. And that's how fundamentally difficult the world has become. Whether it be at Sobeys or the Empire Company, Maple Leaf Foods, or our own Meditech system, sometimes all it takes is for one of us to click on a bogus or poison email. So I know the issues of the day might not be tangled up directly in those. Conversations, but I'm putting it out there anyway. And who are the people that are willing to scam the Royal Canadian Legion by putting up bogus poppies for sale online? Just yet another online operation that is so disgraceful and nefarious in and of itself. And then you talk about being weary of doing business in China. And then you have the SEAL Summit, trying to expand markets. And that would include, of course, China. So, anyway, I understand that we can move on to other topics. But And you want to talk about the SEAL Summit, we can do it. Yesterday, I had, we had a great conversation with a gentleman named Greg French. He's a lawyer out in Clarenville, talking about the convoluted process for individuals when it comes time to sell, just to find out you're on crown land and can't sell. The cost and the time and the nonsense that is perpetuated around this province is unbelievable. Then you look at some of the Crown land maps and this story will get more and more families involved as the days and weeks move on. Add into it, the whole bit about Crown land and the minister responsible, Minister Bennett, saying things like, we have a legal duty and mandate to carefully protect and to regulate the use of Crown lands. And he's right. How does that factor in to the fact that the wind energy companies that have put proposals forward are requesting 1.6 million hectares of crown lands in the province? 1.6 1.6 million hectares. Five companies have actually applied to put what it is a meteorological evaluation tower on 19 pieces of crown land, all to see whether or not wind turbines would be viable in that area. Break it down, island versus uh, the different parts of the island. 972 hectares in western Newfoundland, 622,000 hectares in eastern Newfoundland. So while we talk about the hoops people have to jump through as individuals or families to manage their crown land implication, there's these companies there's been a couple of parcels that have been backed out. Notably on the west coast, the Lewis Hills. You know, that's a portion of the Long Range Mountains, which was in actual fact, the piece of land that World Energy GH2 was looking at. So this doesn't mean it's backed out forever, it just means it's backed out for now as they quote unquote, have a further evaluation of the environmental impact of the wind energy turbines. So while you have a mandate, and it doesn't seem to be any move afoot at the provincial government, to deal with Crown Lands and my home or my former farm or whatever. But, boy, we have got to be so careful with Crown Lands and the water and access to ports when it comes to these wind energy projects. They might be good. I don't know how many long-term operational jobs will be brought to bear if some or all or some of these projects get uh, approved. But 1.6 million hectares of Crown Land is nothing to sneeze at. You want to talk about it? we can do it. And in the world of energy generation, electricity, we know what the bloody impact has been for all the delays and the budget obliteration at Muskrat Falls. We know that it's eventually gonna end up in court with GE regarding the software in the Labrador Island link. We know it's gonna probably end up in court with GE power and the prolonged problems with the synchronous condensers at Soldier's Pond. But here's some other ones that I don't know if we factored in and have a full legal understanding of what it means here. In Nova Scotia, there was an independent uh, audit done at their Utility and Review Board. That's the UARB, much like our P-U-B. They were looking at the implications of the Musgrave Falls delays and what it's meant for customers at Nova Scotia Power, of course, Amera. In 2020, the auditor found that fuel costs were 12 million more than forecasted, so about 4%. In 2021, fuel costs were $176 million over budget, that's 67% more, and they point back to the fact that this is because of the delay at Muskrat Falls. So we know we owe them a lot of power. Uh, It was assumed by Nova Scotia Power to provide 625, 301 megawatts of firm energy over the maritime link in 2020, and over a million, 1.1 million in 2021. No power was received in 2020, and only 9.4% of the power was received in 2021. You know full well that's not sitting well with them, their shareholders, their customers. So what's the implication, dollars and cents, to people in this province with the delays with our partner across the strait? It's gotta be something. You know, they're not just gonna take it on the chin. They came in on schedule, on budget, of $1.5 billion in the maritime link. Anyway, bit of healthcare. So we hear people clamoring for more and more private opportunities, you know, to get out of the lineup in the public system. The private offerings are overwhelmed as well, and we hear those stories all the time. Now people are starting to perk up their ears, and what does this mean? Because when we hear all the provinces talking about just how many problems and staff shortages and wait times and diversions and emergency room closures, people will say, well, if I have the money, I'm willing to pay for a bit of private health care." One key thing to consider on that front, as far as I can tell by listening to people who know more about it than I do, is if we expand the private offering, which of course factors in profit. Profit's not a bad word, but it's a dangerous word in the world of healthcare, possibly. No, not fundamental things like blood collection and pap tests and the like, but other offerings. What the thought is that with more privatization, what we might see is maybe doctors and other healthcare professionals can make more in the private sector Maybe some family doctors will choose that type of hospital-based work versus getting into the fee-for-service model. But the end result might be this. Patients with very complex needs they may find themselves in the public system where everybody else who doesn't have said complex need just needs to have visits with a family doctor or a collaborative care clinic. So what we might have is the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots end up in the public system with the most complicated, expensive uh, symptoms, diseases, ailments, and issues. So that's something that we have to think about as we see that story unfold, because there is going to be more demand for people wanting to set up shop as a private, for-profit entity, and they're not all bad, like I know a couple of the ones out there, nurse practitioner options and Catalyst Health and others, collecting blood and doing some fundamental work. I don't think that's harming the public system, but we have to look at next steps. Not to necessarily refer to it as slippery slope, but. Then this story, which is not new, but it made news again yesterday, is the severe shortage of radiation therapists. The end result of that is we've seen more and more delays in cancer treatment. We've seen cancer patients flown out of the province for treatment. Now these are highly specialized uh, technologists. There's about a 30% reduction in the numbers that we had not so long ago here in the province. This is not a flip the switch and fix it. And again, it's not new. But when we have more and more delays, of course that means more and more sick and more and more costly. And for the individual, devastating to be flown out of province. Some might be relieved to be flown out of province, but that is the furthest thing from ideal, as we can all well imagine. Okay, a couple of quickies before we go. Oh, someone, I saw a letter to the editor in the Telegram. Some suggestion that the, uh, suggesting that the hospital to be built to replace St. Clair should be Mount Pearl. Interesting, you wanna take that on? Let's go, and for your information only. This was forecasted. This is not an effort to make anyone afraid or to stoke fear, just awareness. We have no idea how many COVID cases are out there in the public, none. Testing protocols have made that absolutely impossible. But the Wednesday update of the COVID hub, nine more people have died with a COVID-related death in the hospital. That brings the total to 267. The number of people in the hospital have doubled from nine to 18, four in critical care. You know, like Ottawa Public Health is considering bringing back a mask mandate. And nobody wants to hear the like, but the fact of the matter is just not gone. And the impact we're ha- seeing on children in parts of the country are notable, of note. So I don't know what's going to happen here, but I've long found the controversy surrounding masks to be the most confusing flashpoint of the entire pandemic. Anyway, those are the numbers. You do with them as you see fit. And yes, we could talk about the price of fuel. And one good news story before we go, maybe just an, an interesting story. And I had it here in front of me not that long ago. It's regarding the fact that the oldest coin ever found in Canada was found on the south coast of this island. It is a... So the fellow who found it went through a guy named Paul Berry, former curator with the Bank of Canada's currency, Currency Museum. It's a Henry VI quarter noble. It was minted in London in the 1420s. It happened not that long ago as well in Cupid's Cove Plantation Historic Site in 2021 where they discovered something that was minted in the 1490s. So the oldest coin in the country found here obviously out of circulation by the time it was brought to and lost or placed or planted in the province, but an interesting one. We're on Twitter, seldom interesting. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is Uh Todd saying, change healthcare. How was this contract affected by Bill 20? Millions in penalties. I'm guessing. Yet no one has talked. Or no one I talked to has even heard of such a contract. I'm not sure what contract is referring to. Is that the scheduling software contract that we had with an American outfit? That's basically what it was, a uh, scheduling software, but it came with severe implications. We had to implement 95% of what they come back with a, as recommendations, and if not, we face a fine in the tune of millions of dollars. We're on uh, email. It's open on poCM.com When we come back, how are we doing Dave? Let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Do not go away. Well, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Ryan, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners, thanks for taking the call, sir. Happy to do it. Patty, I'm calling today about the
2: two-day SEAL Summit that wrapped up Wednesday in St. John's. It's been, over your, it's been all over your newscast. Myself and uh, Merv Wiseman attended on behalf of CNL. And, Patty, I'd like to start on a positive note. The fact that there was a SEAL Summit at all was great news. There's an unwritten rule in Ottawa, and I was there for a number of years. Um, the unwritten rule was certainly there when I was there. In terms of SEALs are one of the topics that you don't speak public, publicly about, period. There may be official support by the mainstream political parties for a sustainable seal hunt. Members of Parliament in places like downtown Toronto or Vancouver, they don't want to hear about seals. So to have a seal summit was a success in itself. And it was good to see the province's six Liberal MPs there, as well as uh, Clifford Small for the Conservatives. Derek Bragg was there as Provincial Fisheries Minister. So the summit uh, was happened. It was two days. It It was good news. There was talk about seals. The biggest news out of Ottawa, from my perspective, in decades, Patty, regarding the seal hunt was the statement earlier this year by the minister, Joyce Murray. She said, she said, Patty, that seals eat fish. Now, that's obvious to every one of your listeners, of course, but the way federal scientists have been speaking in recent years, seals don't have any impact on fish stocks or the marine ecosystem. During the summit, DFO officials said just the opposite. The department actually provided information the information stated that seals at current population levels are impacting, are actually impacting the recovery of ground fish stocks like cod, pelagic stocks like capel, capelin, despite the fact that there's been no fundamental change in science, Patty. Uh, that wasn't explained, the change in uh, the, the change in science, Tack. But Patty, my reason for calling is that, and this is my biggest concern – While the feds say Ottawa has changed its tune regarding the negative impact of seals on East Coast fish stocks, there is still no plan, no timelines, no targets to address the problem. And in the absence of of an action plan, like I say, timeline and targets, this summit was just for show. There is no substance without a plan.
1: Well, you know, it's to pick up uh, where you started. It's a good thing that it happened. But it does take away much in the way of media coverage when the media is booted out of the room after Minister Murray's opening comments. Now, they'll tell you the same old thing all, the, all over again. is When there's no media there, people have the opportunity to speak freely uh, without being condemned or taken out of context by the media, which is, I think, flimsy to say in the, in the first place. But when we don't have an ongoing commentary and understanding of what's being said in the room, then all we're going to have is headlines that say, SEAL Summit, opening comments from Minister Murray. She'll take some questions like she did for me yesterday take some questions on the end. But we didn't hear from the other players about what they think, where they stand, where the markets are, what the innovation actually means, what does an expansion look like. I mean, so... I don't know if anything's ever going to come of these types of affairs, and I was taken to task yesterday when I said, the SEAL conversation is as much for show as it is anything else. Until people are able to find a place to sell the product, then we're not going to take the quota like we don't take the quota year over year here already. So that's the trick. Unless someone else is going to buy it, then we're not going to get anywhere with it, because I'll be a monkey's uncle if there's ever going to be a reduction in the numbers, a call for the sake of.
2: Patty, I don't know why the media weren't allowed into the summit. Basically, uh, to start the meeting, you had an overview of the SEAL task team and and their their report uh, after two years of investigation. All of of that information was laid out. The latest scientific information was laid out. The fact that DFO has changed tune on the science was laid out, but they didn't explain why they changed tune. Uh, Again, I don't know why the media weren't there. Uh, There was nothing said during those meetings that I haven't heard before by the same players. I think the feds would have to explain that. But the bottom line, again, is this. for All your listeners need to absorb this unless there is an action plan targets on, on how many seals are going to be removed, a plan to remove the seals, a plan for, market, for markets, unless there is an action plan. Uh, again, this is its just window dressing. This is just for show. People have to, insi- Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have to insist on substance. We're not seeing any. We're not seeing any long-term plan.
1: No, and I suppose that's because of the simple absence of a plan, not to oversimplify.
2: Yeah, um, it's funny too, Patty. Another thing that was mentioned is if there is one DFO success story in terms of management, this was funny, it was mentioned a bunch of times at the conference, it, 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 at the summit. If there is one DFO uh, success story for management, it's seals. And that's, the, and that's at the same time that seals are eating the East Coast fisheries out of house and home. There was even mention at the, uh, at the summit, Patty, about how there are new colonies of gray seals, mostly in the Gulf. Gray seals are mostly in the Gulf, but there are new colonies of gray seals uh, popping up. And and all your listeners are familiar with seals in rivers in Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm -hmm. Well, now they've got a new name for those, and it's river seals. They're animals that basically take up year-round residence in some of our rivers. So the problem is actually getting worse, Patty.
1: Well, it stands to reason if the numbers of seals, for instance, when the moratorium was imposed in 1992, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half million seals, if I remember correctly, off the shores. Now that number is approaching eight million. What do, what do people think is going to happen?
2: Well, Patty, you're right. You've got 7.6 million harp seals at last count. You've got 370,000 gray seals. On top of that, you've got four other species of seals, hooded, uh, hooded bearded, harbour, ringed seals, and DFO comes straight out in terms of those four species that they're actually – the expression they use is data poor. They have no information. I mentioned on your, store, uh, on your uh, show before, Patty, uh, it was 32 years ago that Dr. Leslie Harris – did a report um, on the state of Northern Cod stock that predicted the fall of the stock, and in that Harris report, he called for the incorporation of seal information into different management uh, di- um, different management plans for different stocks. Thirty two years ago, he called for that type of information to be gathered and then incorporated into management plans. Patty, it was never it was never done. I brought that up during the summit the hammer home the point that we're talking, it, 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 we're uh, we're treading water. We're talking about the same things over and over again. But again, coming back to my main point, without an action plan, uh, you know, to deal with this problem, it, again, we're just treading water.
1: I, I agree, and uh, there was nothing really of note or encouraging or enlightening coming from uh, the conversation I had with uh, Minister Murray yesterday, but I suppose when the summit wraps and there's a chance for a post-mortem and a compilation of commentary to formulate a plan, I guess we might see one in the future, but I'm not holding my breath.
2: Well, like I say, it was great to see all of our MPs there. You know, uh, you know, this is a core Newfoundland and Labrador issue in terms of the seal hunt. But uh, we need to, we've got to push our MPs further. There has to be an action plan. We can't settle for any less.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's try to stay half on track with the breaks today. We mentioned the fact there's a some 30% shortage in radiation technologists in this province. The implications for delaying cancer treatments and or cancer patients being flowed out of province for treatment is a real deal. Uh, the representative organization for these technologists, as that NAPE, the president, Jerry Earle, is in the queue. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people
1: talking. Welcome back to the program. It's called Line number 1. Say so good morning tonight, President Jerry Earl. Jerry, you the
3: air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Happy to do it. Uh, touch a base this morning to talk about as you mentioned your preamble the now what we're learning a significant shortage of radiation therapists and the impact upon the delivery of cancer treatments here in our province which is absolutely concerning uh, to those that are delivering the service and certainly concerning to uh, individuals in Newfoundland and Labrador that rely upon this treatment uh, pretty well every day here in this province
1: Do we have a base understanding of what has contributed to the 30% vacancy, you know, ex in for those who are leaving for uh, opportunities elsewhere or retirements. Do we understand the blend? Because that becomes an important part of the conversation for me.
3: Absolutely, Patty, and that's something that we have been saying, not only for this specialist radiation therapist, but when any professional leaving the system, there should be some type of process to understand why they're leaving the system, and in this case, why they're actually leaving the province. Mm-hmm. That was routinely done in healthcare. I know I'm, I left a number of years ago myself. It's been a good while, but I know when I left, I was given an exit interview to understand why I was leaving. Uh, that is lacking, as I understand it. I am not sure that I heard the minister asked this morning, and in fairness to the minister, if that's not done at the frontline level, the minister is not going to have that information passed on to him. Because that's what we have asked as well. Now, we know some of the answers. We don't know all the answers because again, the union is not involved in any way in the exit process and most often we don't learn people have left until we get into this crisis situation and our frontline workers actually reach out to us to help them uh, engage number one, the regional health authorities and get access to the minister level and departmental levels.
1: Yeah, because if we don't know why you're leaving, it's hard to plug that gap. Yeah, I just don't quite understand it. You couple that with the fact that we hear so often that if you're in a nursing school seat or in a medical school seat, you may not have had the recruiter speak to you on an ongoing basis to talk about opportunities, to encourage you to stay, whatever it takes. So those combinations lead to the shortages that we're experiencing throughout the gamut of healthcare workers.
3: Absolutely, Fadi. Because one thing I've always said, like people talk about recruitment, retention. I usually flip it around. You've heard me say, we got to talk about retention. Then recruitment. In the current situation, when we have to find a final way to keep the healthcare professionals that we have, the healthcare providers that we have, and in this case, we're seeing the consequences. These are very specialized individuals. Uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador, one time we had a complement of approximately 30, uh, and that's all that we add in the province, and that's what we needed to operate all the equipment there. We are down now by about 30%. So, what we're saying, we have to find a way to immediately keep the that we have in place seven have resigned this year two in the past week have submitted to resignation what can we do to keep what we have and as just alluded to what can we do then then to recruit and train people up because this is a three-year program not offered in Newfoundland and Labrador and 50% of people that work in this facility are usually recruited from external to the problem so if people external are airing that upwards of 30% are exiting that's going to cause a problem because it's a small community across the country and, well, at that level of leaving Newfoundland and Labrador, why would I move there? Uh, so that's the thing so we got to get into those schools, the closest school that train radiation therapists is in Ontario I'm not sure the last time that a class has been spoken to there to recruit people there because I know I've ran into a couple of personally, just out for a coffee, I've had a couple of these specialists in the past year or two walk up to me and just like thank for, for the work that doing in promoting healthcare and these professionals and talk about how they enjoy living in Newfoundland, Labrador, and working here. So what is it? Why is it they're leaving, uh, and what can we do to curtail any more exiting while we try to fill this gap? Because, uh, as you heard, we're going to hear Newfoundlanders being impacted now, and find to say they're going to have costs covered when sent to the province. But when Newfoundlander and Labradorian or in, any individual is going through cancer care treatment, uh, no first and nothing more important than being close to home. And I know rural Newfoundlanders to come in, but in most cases, Newfoundland or somebody even working in the system the nosed individual uh, but now to uproot and move it because it's not a one-time treatment this is weeks on end uh, you're not uh, admitted to a hospital you're actually living external to that so uh, that's concerning in itself and I can only imagine the additional stress now faced, up, faced up with people that have a cancer diagnosis uh,
1: That's the uh, unfortunate reality is the yes. anxiety waiting for a radiation treatment if you have to wait an additional amount of time whether it be four, five, six weeks we know what that means for the cancer itself and we know what yeah. it means for the anxiety that the patient and everyone around them feels so this is obviously this is obviously a big deal they're highly specialized and I knew that the closest school was in Ontario I don't know what our what it looks like with our presence around that school and its graduates while we talk about setting up a desk in Warsaw and in Bangalore, India sometimes just maybe some of these solutions are right there in Ontario and I'll add to that Alberta they've got themselves a scientific problem in Alberta so maybe that's a home i just bounce this off to the general listening public I know you watch television and you see a commercial where they'll give it up the fact that the person there may or may not be a dentist and they're trying to sell you some Colgate and then you see other doctors that may or may not be real trying to uh, put forward the the benefits of one prescription drug or another if we had real people in the system as part of our recruitment tool as opposed to taking Dr. Megan Hayes's word for it or the government at largest word for it or some documentation uh, presented in black and white if someone on a video reel or someone that could uh, join for forces with Dr. Hayes and go to where these people are to give them real life experiences. Don't believe all the downside you hear. Here's my experience as a doctor, as an MP, as a radiation technologist. Maybe, just maybe, that personal touch might make it a bit more attractive for one, five, or ten, whatever discipline we're talking about.
3: Absolutely Fatty. We've talked about a couple of professional groups. We we represent, we just met, for example, a group of licensed practical nurses and that, and it's the very thing they brought up. Use some of the frontline workers. You've heard me say before, when there's problems, talk to frontline workers, they will quickly identify and most often come up with solutions. But again, use those frontline workers to talk about the experiences they have in the workplace. Because though healthcare was challenging, you talk to most frontline healthcare workers. They love what they do, they know the challenges that's there, they know some of the answers as we put in place, but the vast majority love what they do. They promote the facilities that they live in, they promote their professionals. So use some of those individuals. In this case, take an existing radiation therapist, go off to one of those schools, go off to a couple of provinces. I think you can recruit within the country. It's great to go outside the country. Yes, that may be necessary. And yes, there's a couple of those specialists that are here now are from outside of our country. And the ones that I've talked to enjoy living here, enjoy working here, and speak of those positive experiences. So, again, keeping those people and then adding to the complement, because the impact I'm hearing on the reduction right now of 30% of radiation therapists is quite alarming. They can't meet the targets that are necessary, usually the commencement of treatment within 28 days. Uh, people are not airing that one of two t- CT scanners that are there, for example, that's the first step in radiotherapy, actually is lying idle, not even being operated. Uh, skin cancer treatment, for example, is currently on old, creating a backlist, so there's all Kinds of implications of having a workforce, very specialized workforce, reduced by 30%, and my fear is reduced further.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. That's Jerry Earl, who's the president at NAEP. Uh, add that to the list of HCWs. Uh, let's go to line number two. Gabby, you're on the air.
4: Yeah. Hello, Patty. Hiya. I'm a first uh, time caller, and I'm not going to be late to get half the other bunch of heads on there that they repeat yourself, repeats yourself, repeats yourself, repeats yourself, repeat yourself but ten times. You just did makes a conversation last twenty minutes or ten minutes when it should only last two minutes.
1: You like listening to the show, Gabby? Uh,
4: uh, in a sense a lot of bull i not well shouldn't be on I'm calling about the money by the money yesterday was <laughs> I was listening to your show yesterday morning and I believe you said some of the Five hundred dollars was out in St John's or something.
1: Yeah, and it, that was a home heat uh, rebate. Uh, those five hundred dollars, when the folks that I sent them uh, a note for clarification, they got back to me, and they actually thought that it was the five hundred bucks in the cost of living, but it was the home heat rebate that they were waiting for too. So that is being but, paid so out. You
4: must be you must be home heating bill for electrical, is it?
1: Yeah, there's a home heat rebate that was a one-time number put out for those who are on oil uh, fired. I'm not
4: on oil. I'm on electric. I got. It. I went down to bank yesterday. I had eleven dollars left from me check last month, and I went down oh. when I heard it. I thought it was the five hundred. They had two hundred dollars in my account, so uh, I shouldn't have got that at all, should I? Or what?
1: Well, no. If you're on electric, you don't get that money. So I guess you're calling about the five hundred dollars for folks eighteen and over that were earn a hundred thousand dollars or less. That number? That five
4: hundred? Yeah, I, I make a little over twenty.
1: Okay. Well, you're, you're I
4: live by myself. My wife died last year. I'm alone here with a small dog, be to her, sixteen year old, still alive and kicking, on a cat and a cat a twenty year old. Well, I'm glad. company when they die, I'm going behind them right quick.
1: Well, uh, let's hope that they last for a while then. So that five hundred bucks you're talking about, Gabby, the closest the government has came to a firm date is middle of the month. So I'm it's middle of this month. Yeah, this, next that's that's
4: Okay, yeah, but uh, I don't know where the two hundred come from now. I don't know either someone loves me or someone uh, putting, uh, millionaires putting money in my account or what
1: I think given your personalities there's someone that loves you
4: I don't think so maybe uh, I don't know I got a son that, 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 that lives down in Lewisport I don't know I don't think he's, he's that free with his money even though he's captain on a boat I don't, know, I don't know if he put it in or not
1: so what you got uh, that i suppose is, is accurate is what you got is you all... that was
4: 211 i said i know okay. it's 11 should be there but i okay. wanted
5: uh, okay just So i second. took the
4: 200 out i paid a taxi 40 dollars to bring me the carboneer 40 back
5: okay
4: i got a little bit of groceries that i was short on in the house okay the top top of all right. i got to do the same thing over again now that was a waste of money
1: hold on a second so what you got was the one-time gst check from the federal government
4: a one-time GST.
1: It's a GST bump. You weren't supposed to get another GST check until January of 2023,
4: but my it- my 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 check is coming January the fifth.
1: Yeah, you'll get one then.
4: I get six hundred something not two hundred.
1: Yeah, but no, but this was a one-time bump that was uh, the equal of well, it's not really the equal of anything. They used to try to pretend it was a, uh, reflective of a six-month one-time bump, but it's not. So that two eleven is exactly what you were supposed to get in the GST. So that's what that is. January, you'll get your regular GST check again. But so okay. you can. So this one was the 3 pronged thing that the Liberals put out: uh, Canada Housing okay. Benefits and low-income renters, and yes, the GST. Eleven. Million Canadians got to check with a different amount based on who you are, your age, you got kids or whatnot, but that's your GST bump.
4: Listen, am I really talking to Petty Daly?
1: Well, who do you think you're talking to?
4: You sound's about 25-year-old on TV, it sounds about your right age, 55 or 60, whatever you are. I'm not on TV. What's going on? What? You're, you're, not on the, you're not talking on a on on TV now, are
1: you? You mean the radio that you... So radio, people?
4: radio, yeah, I, I watch it on TV,
1: see? Yeah, so how old do I sound here?
4: Twenty-five or
1: thirty? I look. Basically, I look around thirty, but I sound about fifty. I can't
4: see. You. I I can't see. You. I'm just hearing your take voice. Take my on, word the on the channel.
1: Yeah, take my word for it. Channel six. Yeah, you're actually talking to me, yes, sir.
4: Okay, but this is. I got a couple more quick things now. Uh, quick. Uh, about uh Fleury, What's Fleury, a minister? Is he? Do he? Do
1: he know uh, every ministry in the in the government? Does the premier know everything about every ministry? I Probably not, but he should know as much as possible. It seems to
4: be, talk- seem be you now. Um, I by myself sometimes have queer old dreams about the wife and this and that. And- uh-huh she's she gone out with someone else and she's down in the graveyard I'm waiting to go with her I got my headstone all by her but he seems to answer everything he seems to be answering for every minister talking about every every one of their trades he seems to know it all
1: well I'm sure he knows a fair bit uh, I don't think that's anything new in this world people want to no. hear from the Premier
4: I don't, I don't see what a minister can answer that. That's and they do. they paid for it, so, so if, uh, if he's doing all that, then we don't need to pay them. We just need him only.
1: Well, no, we don't. But, okay, so that's that one. Premiers generally do this. stuff. So ministers answer questions as well, what's the other one you want to talk about?
4: The other one is about no one, no one on TV comes on fishermen, no one, ministers, no one, no, nothing about seals, what they're doing, what they're eating, only me. Well, they don't know. Uh, they haven't got a pinch
1: of coons. A coons. Yeah, wait, wait, No wait, No. I mean, that's just no way to speak, right? Um, the, see,
4: the, see, the, seal, the seals are not 8 million, About 80 million. you know what seals was off?
1: You're the only one who knows. Go ahead.
4: They don't, they don't live off the cod. They don't live off the cod. I spent three winters on draggers. I stood up in the bridge with the captain. I watched the right. trawls coming out of the water. Mm-hmm. and, and orange, orange Charles and sometimes a green coin or orange coin. there wasn't orange it wasn't green it was all black or grey covered with seals completely covered with seals I know what they were doing
1: chasing Hello? yeah go ahead Gabby just, just I mean, you talking eating, about we're going, on going on and on
4: and on they were oh. tearing the guts that was hanging out they're busting out through the straw trials, and still oh. hanging on by their head. They're eating the liver out of the, out of the guts, and that was it. Got it. They're eating the liver out of the fish only.
1: Thanks, uh, Gabby. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the GST bump. So the rest a,
4: the ca- rest was all destroyed. Now, this how much fish you're, you're talking yes, know. about, how much fish are destroying. We'll sure. you Can I have another minute?
1: Well, you, you, right off the bat, you started the have, conversation have, with people going on cool and on fish. and on, so come on.
4: They had to keep on going and eating fish and fish and fish to make up the, 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 the amount of food that that, that one fish would supply the geetings. But they're not. They might have to eat 90 or 100 livers from 90 or 100 fish that died when they shouldn't have died.
1: Yeah, they eat the bellies out of them. They, they discard the rest. That's true. But
4: they don't eat the bellies. They just eat the oh, liver. Oh,
1: they eat whatever their mouth wraps around in the stomach. I mean, that's basically okay, it. Okay, bye. Appreciate it, Gabby. Take care of it. Bye. Let's take a break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Mary, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Mary. you? Yes.
6: Hi. Uh, This morning uh, you were talking about the SEAL Summit or whatever it was called. Mm -hmm. Um, Yesterday when I was listening to CBC, and I'm not sure if it was a news story or maybe on on the go, uh, there's an indigenous group in Vancouver Island area uh, they haven't had any salmon up their river and to the point where they didn't even fish salmon last year Okay. and they are calling or they're going to do I, I couldn't you know because I was just listening in the background uh, a seal call on seals and sea lions, so I don't know if the crowd from Newfoundland know what the crowd out in, on the other
1: coast are doing but maybe they should all get together. How do we get together with the folks on the west coast?
6: Well I just mean that it, 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 transfer information. If we got a group out on the West Coast trying to get rid of the SEALs and a group on the East Coast trying to get rid of the SEALs, maybe together, you know, there's more power in...
1: Numbers, I suppose. I guess you're right there, Mary. And this has happened before off the coast of British Columbia and off the coast of California when it comes to sea lions and off the coast of uh, Scotland when it comes to seals or sea lines or seals. So it's not like it hasn't happened before. My only comment on that front is that we have been hearing from folks talking about the numbers of seals for decades, and right. nothing has changed. So there's also I think a difference in, not that there's a huge difference in the uh, the look of a sea lion to a seal, but we know that the focus for all the anti-seal hunt groups, they have focused strictly on the seal. That's what's been planted in people's mind, minds. All of those pictures of white coats being battered with picks, which hasn't happened in decades, and the oh, red blood on the white ice. That's the stuff that puts us in a strange spot with seals. Of California, they call sea lions all the time they do it off the coast of scotland will we ever do it here that'll be up to the federal government i suppose but it's interesting the point you make that they're calling for it on the coast of bc and that's not new either they've called for this in vast yes
6: yeah. and they said i don't know if i'm repeating myself though they said there was no salmon going up the river and because of that they didn't even have a salmon fishery last year and this is why this man that I was listening to, he was very upset. And I don't think he was saying to the government, uh, "You know, we'd like for you to, uh, you know, give the seal of approval." I think because they're indigenous, they're going to do it, and no questions asked. That's the impression I got from the story. Also, I remember back in the 70s uh, when my mom could send me a package of Vancouver Island with pumpkins and cans of stuff and, you know, all the Newfoundland goody things uh, for next to nothing. Anyway, she used to send me a canned seal meat. Now, I can tolerate... <laughs> I like it. Uh, it's almost like a royal passage. I think I should eat seal for once a year. But I'm not really fond of them. But w- whatever company this was, I can see it now. It had a w- red and white label on it. And it was seal, but it tasted more like moose. It didn't have that hateful taste on it. So there is a way to process it that... You know, I I could put it in a stew. I mean, who would ever think of seal stew? So I don't know exactly how they did it, but they did. <laughs>
1: last comment for me and then I'll let you wrap it up is you mentioned the indigenous community and maybe they'll get this uh, taken care of versus anybody else it's very much in line with the anti-seal organizations that are out there they'll say that it should never happen it should never happen it should never happen unless it's an indigenous person because they don't want to go down the path of dealing with the cultural issues uh, regarding indigenous peoples and seal products whether it be the meat and or the pelt so they make that the distinction themselves so it's an interesting point once again, that you point out there. So we'll see what becomes of that story. I'll have a little look during the newscast here, here now. But uh, yeah, I have one feed of seal per year. That's it. I know one of the companies that were at the seal summit is Carino. They process seal meat and seal product for distribution uh, in different parts of the world. So it's still being done. And I know there's some chefs here locally that try to do innovative stuff with seal to make it more appealing to folks. But I have the one meal per year. That's it.
6: Well, can you imagine, I mean, if if we could have a little factory like that set up somewhere in Newfoundland, that would employ a lot of people.
1: Only if you can sell the the product, though, isn't it? You know, you can probably can all you want, but unless someone's buying it, that wouldn't be much of a business. Uh, But we did have a cannery here some years back. I can't remember when it closed down, but I know where you're coming from, Mary.
6: Okay, well, thank you, Patty.
1: Appreciate your time okay bye-bye take care bye-bye uh let's go ahead and take a break for the news there's a story that's irritating many out there today it's the fact that one of the fellows who was involved in these very dangerous home evasions he's been granted bail you know these were random attacks he seems like a dangerous bloke but he's out there again now apparently not strict house arrest but yeah let's take a break for that and when we come back we will speak with you
0: Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell, Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on V O C M.
1: And welcome back to the show. Let's go line four, caller. You're on the air.
7: Good morning. Good morning to you, Patty. Yes. I am. I don't know which adjective to use. I'm infuriated, uh, bewildered, shocked at ju- Justice Bruce Schwartz's decision to grant bail to uh, Hurley, uh, one of the one of the guys convicted of um, the the home invasion?
1: It's a head-scratcher, and by reputation, apparently, Justice Short is very stern, so I'm surprised to say the very least that this guy's out. Now, it's of very little comfort to me that he's on strict house arrest because his crimes were random, they were violent, and he shows very little in the way of remorse. The way he first presented himself in the courtroom means that he doesn't really care.
7: Well, I know the family uh, not well. I know the extended family more so uh, of the couple on Beaumont Street. And, I mean, they're enjoying, you know, an afternoon or an evening um, when all of a sudden these two guys took it upon themselves to bash into their home and plunge a knife into one of their bodies. I mean, I, I I just can't. Wrap my head around uh, Justice Short's um, evaluation of this. I, I, you know, I can't imagine what the family is going through. They suffered anxiety. I know for you know just from uh, speaking with extended family members, uh, financial loss. You know, lack. You know, and, and just due to lack of work. You know, the gentleman was off work for a while, and now they're they're being victimized all over again, knowing that Hurley is out walking the streets again. You know, I just don't understand the judicial system. I really can't understand. And now what's even worse is that they're keeping it hidden as to why Justice Short made that decision.
1: I don't know. I really don't know. But, you know, the anxiety felt by the families or household members of the, the two homes that these fellas broke into, I can only imagine what they're going through. But let's just think back to when this happened. The police went right to the media and told us all to lock our doors right? Yeah. Don't answer the door if you're not expecting a parcel or a person and stay inside and I mean the whole place was a little bit f- freaked out. Same thing with the big shootings or the shootings in, uh, in CBS, so, you know, lock your doors I mean, so this had a community wide impact, certainly nothing like the families themselves felt so I don't understand any rationale for this particular fella getting bail. We do know the numbers are something in the neighborhood of 60% of the population at Hermatius Penitentiary are on remand. They haven't even faced the court system yet for a verdict of guilty or innocent, or I guess guilty or not guilty. So if it comes down to a space thing, that's a problem. I mean, if we have a population overcapacity issue at HMP, which might see some dangerous people out walking around free, that's a problem.
7: It is a problem. And, uh, you know, just if I can touch just for another second on another issue that was kind of, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, in the back of my mind, you know, in the past few days. Um, the likes of Douglas Snellgrove and, and other criminals who have been convicted, uh, they keep delaying the process, delaying the process, delaying the process, process and some of them are incarcerated. But they're kind of cute, you know. They, they, fought, they fire the lawyers, they rehire, they, they delay, delay, delay while they're incarcerated, knowing that if their sentencing day comes around, they're going to be credited with double time served. So this is what the, a friend of mine is—is is actually an attorney, and and she was telling me that this is what they do. They they um, delay the process uh, while they're incarcerated, so that when they are released or when they are sentenced, sorry, they're credited with double time served. So the longer they can delay the trial, the better. And I don't think that they should be allowed to hire and rehire and fire and lawyers. I mean, most of these lawyers that are granted to them are are through legal aid, and so. You know, I I just can't understand the money that we're spending on these criminals, the the court time that's being occupied. Uh, when, I mean, they, they're ruling the roost. They have. I'm so upset today, Patty. It's unbelievable. Um, the, the criminals are telling the justice system what they want, as opposed to the justice system saying to the criminal, "Look, this is uh, what we're going to you know penalize you with." I just can't believe what they get away with. And now Hurley is out walking the street. And like you said before, I have no reassurance or, or you know, uh, knowing that, that he's under strict house arrest. If he has the mentality to walk into a home, an innocent family home, and, and terrorize them for the rest of their lives, he doesn't have the mentality to, to adhere to uh, house arrest. That, that's... That's... Oh, my gosh. It's a fair observation.
1: And the issue regarding legal aid is an important one, too, because they'll say, you know, firing lawyers because they can't get along or whatever is a delay tactic more often than not. And the issue regarding legal aid attorneys, they're amongst the most experienced in the courtrooms for uh, serious crimes. And yet we have this concept that they're not qualified enough, they're not good enough. I mean, one of the former legal aid attorneys, uh, Derek Hogan, the, the late Derek Hogan, was one of the finest legal minds in the province. I know people who are legal aid attorneys and they are absolutely top notch. But of course, when you see the headlines and you know that you can get Bob Buckingham or Randy Percy or whoever, they think, well, I have a better chance. And so I'll see if I can petition the courts to have the province pay for it when we just should be saying no.
7: No, their initial lawyer should be the one that they have to stick with. I mean, who's the criminal here? You know, us, the taxpayers or the person that uh, committed the crime? You know, I'm starting to actually wonder uh, who is being penalized here because it's certainly not the criminal they they have the freedom you remember years ago um his, his name eludes me now uh the man who was charged with uh drowning his two daughters and we're talking you know 25 years ago nelson hart exactly thank you he did the same thing he delayed it, delayed it, delayed it, and when the time came for sentencing, oh, well, you've been incarcerated now for three years, so we're going to give you credit for six years.
1: And that was actually overturned uh, based on the sting that the, uh, they grabbed him in, so that's how I remember the story. Just very quickly, I went to Hermatius Penitentiary back when I was working with Chrissy on Out of the Fog. We were doing a, a show from there, and when we got into the cell block areas, the very first person I saw was Nelson Hart. The first set of beady little eyeballs peering out through the glass from one of the cell blocks was Nelson Harris. And I was creeped out right away.
7: Yeah, yeah. Well, in in the same way you were creeped out, I'm sure this family on Bowland Street and the other place, I think it was in Torbay, they're probably doing the same thing, looking over their shoulder. When, you know, am I going to come face to face with this idiot? Uh, You know, I I can't imagine the anxiety the family's going through. I understand your point. I have heard, you know, a little bit from the family members about what they went through. I mean, were in, the gentleman on Beaumont Street, he was hospitalized, um, you know, and again, they'll never be the same. That family, you know, as, as tries they may to, to get over it, I can't speak for them. But personally, you know, you're victimized for life. And now knowing that he's out doing whatever he wants to do, uh, it's a slap in the face to the families. It really is.
1: I think your opinion is in the majority of this morning here, caller. I'm glad you made time for the show. It's a tricky story, isn't it?
7: Yeah. Well, I have my doubts that uh, Justice uh, Short is listening right now. But uh, you know, if the message gets back to him about uh, you know the, the, the community, or well, I can't speak for the whole community, obviously, but you know the general reaction to his and you know if he's going to grant him bail, tell us why. We have a right to know if, if he if this idiot is out roaming the streets we have a reason we should we need to know uh you know why he was allowed to do that
1: and you will never really get down to the brass tacks of those types of decisions but i appreciate your time this morning and hopefully those two families are managing even though they know that the perpetrator is not behind bars where it seems to me and you and many is exactly where he belongs
7: well, you know, again, I, I, I can tell you that this family on Beaumont Street, a uh, young couple, hardworking, honest, and, like I said, their lives have been turned
1: upside down. Thank you for your time this morning. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go to line number three. Tony, you're on the air. you this morning, Patty. Okay, how about you?
8: Good, thanks. First of all, I like this. Uh, you had a caller on there yesterday, a real estate agent. He was saying about the interest rate in the banks. For example, now, the interest rate has gone up so much that for, say you had a, a you, you uh, had a mortgage three years ago and it's up for renewal now, for every $975 you got a mortgage, it's gone up $350 more a month. So, I mean, that's a lot to a lot of people, especially if you're just trying to get things meet, um, you know, met.
1: There's but, a lot of variables inside that, uh, including how much you still owe on your mortgage, but anyway, okay.
8: Well, uh, if you're paying $995, well, say $975 a month on a mortgage, whatever it is, uh, well, it's $350 if you pay more than, if it's more than that, if it double that, well, then you're pay 700
1: Yeah, there's a lot of variables to that. You know, how long the amortization period is, how much you owe well, on your mortgage. Not three year.
8: That's not a three-year term.
1: But we do know that uh, the hike in interest rates has had a major effect with consumer debt outside your credit card. That includes your mortgage. Yeah.
8: And I want to get to the hook here because right now they're saying, and Tom is making another announcement today about the incentives. But what they should do is give back the incentives that they've taken away from the doctors these last seven years, and and increase their may and just let them make decisions. Which right now, what they're saying is that the government is looking over their shoulder for every little thing, and they wouldn't. And I mean, you take the I think it was late last year they went in, Haggie and his team went in and talked to the the medical students and they never made them any offers they weren't allowed to ask any questions and then they allowed PEI and Nova Scotia to come down and talk to them and make them offers so if they were in- interested in signing them uh, uh, recruiting doctors why didn't you sign them or make them offers like it was beyond me what they're doing to the people I mean you see, t- they're treating people like they're so stupid and, I mean, doctors are resigning and leaving here because of the stress and, and they're under. And they're, they've lost all incentives for doctors that are around rural areas. They lost, took away all their incentives they had. What, Like what? Well, there's clinics that they were helped pay for, which they lost, and other major major ones that they've lost. I've talked doctors, and, you know, it's just they're resigning out there because of it. And the first time, like I said before, in 140 years, we don't have an emergency in a doctor in that. Uh, out was in, the, what's the point, out in the, God, 24 in Bonavista. I mean, it's just, they're resigning, they've lost all doctors. We got, i say we had 125,000, 130,000 people waiting for doctors. Now i say more like 150.
1: Well, and, that yeah. number's actually gone down, which is a good thing. Um, and, the, you know, I don't know what anybody thinks we can or should do. I love this solution-based conversation. The amount of incentives dangled around for different healthcare professionals seems to be pretty richly incentivized. Like, I don't know what it's going to take. You know, if you set up, shop as a family doctor in rural Newfoundland and have a full patient roster in three years, there's a th- $100,000 bonus coming. If you went to med school here or you have family from, or you're from here and you come home, there's $100,000. If you're registered nurse, there's $50,000. If you have no relationship with the province as a doctor, it's $50,000, Twenty five for a nurse. So I'm not really sure what... Other measures can and should be taken. To move a nurse from the casual list to the permanent full-time list, $3,000 bonus right there. So I'm not really sure what's going on or what more can be done. I just do not know.
8: I really don't think they're, they're telling the, the truth to the people uh, right now. Well, they never, you don't answer questions. Truth
1: about what, Tony, in particular? But, do, I think?
8: The, the centers that they're offering doctors, because the doctors, the doctor. The they lost their in the centre. In fact, it was uh, it was, it was about a few months ago, there was a doctor on the news, and he said he was, he phoned, he's working in BC, he's from Loki Bay. And he graduated, he had a ha- owed a half a million dollars, and he wanted to come home, but when he, when he got a hold of the premier's office, because they were offering you, oh yeah, you go anywhere you want to come home, phone us, and they never offered him any incentives whatsoever, and it was about 40 to 60 percent lower than what he's getting now.
1: But wasn't so, that an uh, issue also including his partner, Is a healthcare professional as well, but that profession isn't recognized here, I believe she was a, physis- a physician's assistant, isn't that how that story no. went?
8: No, that was this. This guy was home by himself, but there's another one. Now my, uh, there's another doctor here. She had a clinic open for five years. In Fact it was, I started going to, a couple, going to her a couple months ago before she closed her clinic because her husband was a doctor and her two sons were here graduating for a couple years, and. He couldn't get a doctor. Uh, he couldn't get a job here as a doctor because he's from another country. So now they're talking about bringing him in from India, but yet he couldn't get a doctor here. So we would, instead of losing, right now we could have kept her and her and a couple of sons that were going to be doctors, and her husband could have come in to be a doctor. Instead of that, she even had to move away. He loved it here. She's are her, hoping in another few years they'll come back again because they absolutely love it. But and as you talk to any health care, and they love here in, in in Newfoundland and Labrador, but they just the, the government is treating them like crap they like, dictatorship, and uh, something's got to be done. I mean, just as what it is now, you've got people dying, waiting to get in. You had a, a, a man, an elderly man, waited 12 hours in an ambulance to get in the, the carbonier hospital the other night. I mean, it's just unbelievable what's going on. It was the first time I ever, ever, I ever heard of what's going on here in this province. I mean, you got a lot of the emergency clinics closed. You've got 300 nurses who went from full-time to casual to uh, since January, Left their jobs full time, went casual and part time, and some of them even quit.
1: Where's that number coming early. from? Where'd you get that number, Tony?
8: That was on uh, that was a nurses union was on uh, issues and answers on Sunday.
1: Three hundred uh, have left permanent full time to go casual.
8: Okay, we went from casual. Some of them retired early. Took re- re- early retirement because of the stress level, and some of them left their jobs altogether okay. because they just couldn't do work. And she said they were working twenty four hour shifts, and they just can't handle the, the stress. They're under. I mean, it's just unbelievable what's going on in, in the province, and they're not doing nothing about it. I mean, where's all the nurses that's graduating here? You know, and as and going to school and graduating, they're not getting no offers. The doctors never get no offers. In fact, there was, there was only a few months ago, there was a lady f- from here who graduated. She had a piece in the paper that she's working in PEI now. She never even got an offer from the government. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, and I mean, this is what's going on. So, I mean, how can they say they're doing everything to try to get doctors here when they're not even offering our own people uh, that's here? And uh, contracts, like it's beyond me, what's going on, you know? And, okay. Uh, we've got something to do, and I think people should protest to our members, and uh, anything I can do to help out, there's nurses, doctors, whomever, just I'm, I'm here waiting, and I'll, be, I'll help pro- uh, run out the protest. I'll be the first in line.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Tony. Take good care of yourself.
8: You too, Betty, okay. and you have a great
1: weekend. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, community policing, good one. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Louise. You're on the air. Good morning,
9: Patty. How are you today?
1: Very well, thanks. How about you?
9: I'm great. Um, The the reason I was calling in, um, I just listened to that lady on the line calling in about um, the man that was released and the the incident that happened that took place. Um, And I feel completely horrible for that family and what they're going through. Like, my thoughts are with them. Um, And I hope that they have people that are with them that, you know, can can make them feel safe. But I was thinking about... um, There was a lot of talk about this area, Rabbit Town. And I'm not from Newfoundland, so you might have to give me some kind of direction on where that area is in the city.
1: It's the center of the city.
9: Okay. So, what I was thinking is, I know in certain areas, um, like I lived in Belleville, Ontario, and what they would do is they would take low-income housing properties and they might take a unit out of one of those properties or a house downtown and the police would actually over, like, take over that unit. And they would be in the unit. Um, if there was any incidents in the area, they would respond to it. And they'd be involved with the kids. They would do, um, like, after-school programs with the kids, uh, sports and different thing activities like that. And they, would, they were so much of a community there that people knew who they were. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the police officers knew a lot of the people by name. And they... It was just such a large part of the community. And and not only there, but I've seen it also in Halifax, uh, the Spryfield area. They did the same thing. And I don't know if they do that here in this province, but I think it would be an absolutely great idea if they could, if they had the funding and they were able to do something like that.
1: Well, it's the extension of community policing into community oriented policing and they do it in a variety of places I know in some of the most notorious gangland areas of Los Angeles they do it they do it in Baltimore they do it in Halifax I think there's some of that a move in uh, Toronto if I'm not mistaken but it doesn't always have to be you live in the unit the whole nature of community policing is as old as the hills isn't it you know you had a cop on the beat the cop knew the uh, the postman and the cop knew the shop owners and the cop knew the people in the neighborhood and the cop knew some of the kids by name and before long whether it be a constant presence in the police cruiser or on foot it became that presence where all of a sudden you built an additional layer of trust and knowing that the police were there as opposed to always reacting with 911 after something has gone horribly wrong so that has been that has worked and that was back in the days when there was a built-in level of trust and respect for law enforcement and a lot of that has been eroded for a variety of reasons but community policing has always proven to work the r say that they try to do more and more of it and they've given us some examples but not to the extent of the old-timey policing of knowing the people in that neighborhood developing a relationship with those people whether it be you're living in the unit amongst them in the neighborhood or not it was just that constant presence of the same faces as opposed to the rotation that we see now whoever happens to be on patrol at that particular hour of the day
9: and you made a great point there um, building a trust with the police force because well, I don't have to get into stories, but we all know the stories. And, you know, there's so many bad stories that we don't hear the good ones. And I recently saw an article, I don't know, it was a few weeks ago. There was uh, a bunch of police officers. I think it now I might be wrong in the place, but I believe it was Labrador. And they were, I, I think it was RNC officers, and they were outside playing basketball with the kids, right? And these are the kind of stories and, like, I, I just feel like, like you said, there should be more police around and getting involved with the kids, and that builds a trust. So the poli- the kids trust the police. They don't have to feel in fear of them. Not saying that all children do, but there are some cases where, circumstances where they do feel fear. But, I don't know, that's just my thought. I might be
1: wrong. <laughs> no, I look, and there's a variety of reasons, and there's, you know, it's a different set of circumstances in different pockets of this city, different parts of this province, and across the country. It's not all the same. Sometimes it might be the bad actions of some law enforcement where you live. Sometimes it might be what we see in the United States bleeds into our psyche in this country. Sometimes it might be members of indigenous communities or socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods. So it's all different. That's why there's a different approach required every time we see law enforcement or government. Try to create a one-size-fits-all. It generally fails, and it fails spectacularly. That's why when you take an approach, for instance, that a police officer and his family would live in one of the... or his or her family would live in a notoriously crime riddled or dangerous neighborhood that's one thing it's quite another to have the same half dozen cops be on constant patrol on foot for instance in the george street the bar area of st john's so i think they're all different which is why they have to take time to develop what works for that community and it's hard to evaluate within a week or so whether or not it's working it's a long-term strategy that needs time to develop so the relationships can develop so the trust can be expanded so i get exactly where you're coming from and it did work in the past there's no reason to work today.
9: Definitely. Well hopefully we see some improvements in the justice system and the policing and we can we can move forward in a happy and healthy way.
1: And most importantly <laughs> public safety.
9: Exactly, exactly. And you know that um, That that story um, is just so concerning. Uh, You made a great point when you were talking to that lady. Like when that incident was taking place, the police were telling us all to lock the doors and be fearful. And it's like, so if somebody were to break into my home, you know, like if I did something, am I going to be in trouble? Like, (laughs) you know, it's scary. It's you know, you don't want to live in that type of world, like i don't
1: know understood appreciate the concept and the time this morning thanks a lot
9: <laughs> exactly well you have a great day patty and thank you for your time
1: anytime louise take care
9: okay All right. bye-bye
1: bye-bye uh dave how are we doing on the telephone by the way Okay, will I take Leona here or get back on track? No, let's take Leona. Let's go to line one. Leona, you're on the air.
10: Uh, Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, First-time caller. Welcome. I I just want to uh, give a bit of insight on uh, the people who have to go for radiation in Toronto. Uh, in 2007, uh, we had a, a, a backup here when I had cancer. We had a backup here in our province, and uh, our government was sending people to Toronto. Um, I had some strange feelings at the time not to go, but uh, rather than wait two or three months, you know, for your radiation, I went. And it was the most beautiful experience, I'm telling you right now. Anyone who's got fears of going there should put them to rest because it you get treated VIP treatment at the Princess Margaret Hospital. I stayed at a hotel walking distance from the hospital, and there was many, many Newfoundlanders there. I say a couple of dozen of them. We had all one floor and lots of camaraderie there between the Newfoundlanders, but it was a wonderful experience, and the Princess Margaret, you're treated like royalty there. Government arranged everything. My husband went with me, and uh, because I didn't have any small children at I think they consider, you know, putting people, uh, you know, who, who didn't mind being away from family. Uh, you know, it was hard like that, just being away from family from April to June. But it was a wonderful experience. So I want to advise anyone who has to go, rather than stress out for two or three months, whether your cancer has progressed or not being treated, please take, take what the government is offering and go to Princess Margaret. You will not regret it.
1: Well, look, there's so many good care centers right across the country, I guess the background of why people are less inclined to want that, even though the care and the treatment of the bedside manner might be world class, is just the fact that you can't get it done where you live. You can't go home at the end of the day or go back to Daffodil Place versus be somewhere where, for some people, they may indeed be alone there. So I get it. That's great. I'm glad the care was exactly what's required and is what people should be able to expect wherever they're getting healthcare in this country. So that's the good news. Uh, Leona, just one more time, can you remind me of the relationship you have with these uh, people? I I got off to a, a, a deaf start here.
11: Uh,
10: my, uh, no, I. the government arranged everything because they were, you know, I had um, uh, breast cancer treatment. Okay. And so, um, you know, uh, it was a two-month or three-month waiting list before I got my radiation. And I was stressed beyond that I couldn't wait two or three months. I wasn't going to wait two oh, or three months after my chemotherapy to get radiation treatment. So they offered me to go to Toronto, uh, which m- many Newfoundlanders did at the time and I mean it was a wonderful experience I had all kinds of fears about going and everything like that but once I got there and got got going through my treatment it was a beautiful experience you know you were actually in if they stay at the Chelsea Delta world class hotel and many many Newfoundlanders were there my husband went with me okay. and so you know uh, government paid for uh, everything except your food and stuff like that but uh, government paid for your hotel your transportation to go and so on so it was no fear in that respect, you know what i mean so i'm I'm just want to reach out to people who have the fear about not going and staying in the province for the next two or three months or maybe longer before they get their radiation. You know, things could happen to your body, so please go. You know, uh, you know, it's not so it's not so stressful as you think. Once Good. you get there and get checked in, and and get all your arrangements done, I'm telling you, it's a, it was a great experience for me.
1: Well, I'm glad it was. And how are you these days, Leona?
10: I'm wonderful. It's Seventeen years ago now, and thank God, I I had no relapse or anything like that. But I'm absolutely feeling wonderful.
1: I'm really glad to hear that, and I'm glad you called this morning. Thank you. Thank you care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, all right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, there's someone who says we're, uh, we're not allowed to talk about certain things, but, of course, that's bloody nonsense. There was a ruling in the province of Alberta a couple of days ago, and this was a court challenge brought forward by a terminally ill woman. She was denied an organ transplant because she did not have the COVID vaccine, the, f- the definition of fully vaccinated, which remains two shots in the primary series. The issue, and people are making hay on it, But this has been the case since the very beginning of the pandemic. And we actually had someone who was in the organ procurement world on this show early on in the pandemic when vaccines became available. And organ clinics, organ donation clinics, harvesters and folks putting the organs into the transplantee, they're quick to tell you that the full up-to-date vaccination status has always been the case, and they added COVID vac- the COVID vaccine to it, basically saying you are never at a more uh, immunocompromised state than when you're anticipating waiting and getting an organ donation. But that court ruling has been made in the province of Alberta, and if you want to talk about that or anything else under the sun, you can do it after this break. Don't go away.
0: You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed.
1: Get up-to-date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director at the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Susan Hyde. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air.
5: Yes, good morning. How are you, Patty?
1: Very well. How about you?
5: I'm so glad. Yes, no, I'm terrific. I'm always happy to be on the line with you. Um, So I'm just calling today to remind folks or to let folks know that the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador is having their next family recovery journey. Uh, We begin on November 15th on Tuesday and go for five Zoom sessions. Um, so basically what folks can look forward to would be to learn how to uh, learn strategies for managing the impact of psychosis and schizophrenia on uh, family and friends. So people learn coping skills, how to manage crisis, you know, how to communicate with your loved one that's living with schizophrenia or psych- psychosis. Uh, so that's it. It's a limited group size. It's free of charge, of course. And if anybody wants to register or get more information, they can certainly call Susan, that's me, at 777. 777- three 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 five or my email is E D at S S N L
1: and so what does the journey story mean? What are we going to hear from people?
5: Okay, so part of the program is, on, is education. So we're going to learn everything we can about psychosis and schizophrenia, how it, how it manifests itself, uh, what kind of treatments are available, what are some new treatments coming down the, the pike. Um, uh, people will have an opportunity to talk to each other, and that's the most powerful part of the journey is seeing family members talking to other family members, other families, about what's going on in their lives. And, the, and the, you can see the light bulbs go off over people's heads, and you can see people f- relaxing a bit for the first time maybe in years, knowing that they're not alone on the journey. So that's what it's all about, It's giving family members what, the skills and the information that they need to make sure that their loved one is able to live the life that they desire.
1: I wonder how much of the the journey stories are associated with exactly the reality of life for their loved one and the impact on the family mm-hmm. and in addition what the stigma associated with schizophrenia because the stigma around schizophrenia is much different than other mental illnesses it just is mm-hmm. and unnecessarily and unfairly so.
5: Absolutely. And one of the most important uh, stigma related Things that happened in our in our course was when a couple moms said out loud that they were actually adding to stigma because they didn't feel comfortable talking about their children at the Christmas party or you know at work or whatever. It's sometimes their their journeys are so painful. And I actually just was in touch this morning with a mom who lost a son, uh, and she says due to psychosis. So it's it's very serious. We take it. We we put out the information for people. We answer all the questions that we possibly can, and we invite, we usually have a mom or a dad come and present to our families about their journey and how it went. There's some similarities between Journey. Like you said, stigma is certainly a part of it. Uh, and we, we take stigma apart. We just say, no, you know what, let's not talk about stigma. Let's talk about what's going on with our children and how we can get them to have lives that they deserve.
1: Fair enough. Uh, give us some idea of the numbers here in the province of people that are being diagnosed and living with schizophrenia.
5: It's just globally, Patty, it's, a, it's one in a hundred. So we figure we've got more than 5,000 people, uh, well over 5,000 people that have been diagnosed. Uh, it could go up to fifteen thousand, um, and then, and then of course you have to add the people, the families, the friends, the carers who are also affected by the illness, and it, it just kind of, like a spider web, right?
1: I can only imagine. Susan, give us the details one more time about how people can participate.
5: Okay, well, they this is a family recovery journey for folks who have a loved one living with schizophrenia and or psychosis and they'll be learning strategies for managing the impact of psychosis and schizophrenia on their family and friends and they're most importantly are going to learn how to support their loved one living life to their full potential. It's a five session Zoom program beginning on Tuesday November 15th and uh, they can call me at 777 777- three 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 five or the schizophrenia society
1: appreciate you making time susan thanks for this
5: thank you for making time take care Uh, okay Bye bye bye
1: bye susan hyde executive director at the schizophrenia society of newfoundland and labrador boy you know like i admitted off the top of the show and i know that i say to myself quietly every morning it's hard to know what is going to excite people or to provoke a call or what have you I've got a fair idea, but we try to sprinkle it around so that there's a little bit of different topic uh, content to consider as you listen to the program. But when the lady called about the bail for the home invader, the Jonathan Hurley, it's just unbelievable. I I kid you not, dozens of responses right away, and every single one of them on side with that particular lady and her disgust or frustration with the fact that you know, a dangerous individual who committed random acts of violence is now out of the penitentiary. It feels like an opportunity for that person in particular to be the poster boy for per- people who belong in the penitentiary, even though they will still be awaiting trial and a verdict of guilty or not guilty. You know, th- the, the issues surrounding capacity at the pen... I don't know what the plans are. I can't remember off the top of my head for the number of people they can incarcerate in the new penitentiary, and the ground has been broken, beginning the the project construction phase. I don't know, but we do know, and we've been told repeatedly, about 60% of the people uh, at Her Majesty's are on remand. So there's always going to be human nature that is part of decision-making, whether you be a judge or an attorney on either side of the adversarial system. So I don't know exactly why this particular justice thought it was the right idea but i kid you not dozens of people within 75 seconds were chiming in and they were all on side with that particular caller and then the issue regarding the price of fuels and this has dominated the conversation whether it be home heating fuels diesel or gasoline overnight here we go again the price of gas is uh what they increased the price of gas by some 5.3 cents. Diesel lowered 8.5 cents. 8.5 cents when compared to over a three day span, there was a 58 cent hike in the price of diesel per liter. Other two notables furnace oil increased by 2.2 cents, and then there's stove oil de- increased by 3.31 cents. So if you want to tackle that too, that's always open for a discussion on this program. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. And sometimes some of the topics might be confusing, or maybe it's my delivery that's confusing. Emailer was wondering, what the HE double hockey sticks do I care about what's going on in Nova Scotia with the cost of their power? The point is, they just had an audit done of their utility and review board, that's UARB. And it was looking at the cost of generating power, what the pass-along cost was to the end uh, consumer, the customer. So that does have an implication here. Remember, we have a contractual, re- uh, a contractual obligation to Nova Scotia Power and Amera. So the fact of the matter is, in 2020, the auditors said that the fuel costs are $12 million more than the forecast. Uh, that's an increase of some 4%. In 2021, fuel costs were $176 million over budget, and that's a 67% increase. So as a result, they had to burn more coal, natural gas, biomass to meet the demands of their customers if we haven't been able to deliver on our contractual requirements with the mirror the issue that i'm trying to highlight here is that there is going to be some action where we're going to cover some of that cost think about it we owe them power for quite a number of years now and we have delivered some in 2020 we the power received was 9.4 percent of the forecasted power received in 2021. We are not living up to our obligation. That's why it's an issue about what's going on in Nova Scotia. Not that my concern is the Nova Scotia ratepayers. My concern is, as a ratepayer in this province, some of that increased cost in Nova Scotia may indeed find its way onto my bill. Why? Because we have a contract. I know there's going to be pending, well there should be pending litigation with General Electric and GE Power regarding the Labrador Island link, and of course the issues that are persistent that the soldiers pond with the synchronous condensers, and you know, thankfully engineers who know certainly way more about it than I do. Talk about how and why these problems have probably been created. Uh, whether it be the bearings that have been flattened because we hadn't been turning the axles or the, the moving parts inside the, the condenser itself, I don't know, because that's not my field of knowledge and or expertise, but there you go. So that's what I meant about Nova Scotia. It's not that it's a big deal to me what someone in Dartmouth is worried about, but some of those costs may indeed be passed along to me. We may indeed be required to cover some of those losses or increase costs to Nova Scotia Power and to their customer. And also the update on the knee and hip replacement, the day surgery, it's coming, we're told. And of course, we only know what we've been told at this stage. So they're going to expand that offering to Carbonier and to St. Anthony. There's going to have to be work done in the operating theatres at both of those locations to accommodate the same day or the the day surgery for hip and knee replacement and the ability to be discharged as opposed to occupy a hospital bed. What it looks like is there's going to be a traveling group of surgeons and staff to accommodate like once a week in either of those locations. The waitlist for hip and knee replacement is long and easy to measure. Again, just on a on a personal note, a friend of mine has one scheduled for 2 weeks from I think yesterday. That means they would have been on the waitlist for 22 months. 22 to uh, 22 months and so what was once simply the knee had to be replaced now there's a funny feeling that he may indeed be facing a hip replacement surgery because when you have a sore knee and you institute this limp to accommodate the pain next thing you know you've probably done some damage to your hip we know that the lists are only going to grow longer as time goes by just on the basics of the age of the population. So when exactly that is going to come to pass is anybody's guess, but that's, that's a good pragmatic move. What I would ask in that front is if it was available, as opposed to have the knee replacement to spend whatever length of time in hospital bed, a day or two or what have you, if it was always the possibility or the opportunity to see that person discharged same day, why has it taken that long? And again, not trying to make something that is obviously fairly complex and to be something that's patently simple. But anyway, there you go. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, there's still another hour to speak with you. But remember, this is the last show of the week. We will indeed have a Remembrance Day special uh, delivered by Brian O'Connell tomorrow. So take this opportunity right after this. Don't go away
0: nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your vocm and welcome back let's go to line
1: number one mike you're on the air hey patty good morning morning to you it is uh
12: it's nice to speak to you today thank you for the work that you do for the community getting everything out like you do when you're showing it's a very valuable tool to the uh, people of Newfoundland and Labrador. I I certainly uh, would hope that this thing continues on, at least until I'm gone, (laughs) up the face of the earth. Patty, uh, the reason for my call this morning is to comment on the SEAL Summit that took place the last couple of days in St. John's. I was there, Um, I was a participant, and for those who know me recognize that there's probably few of anybody with as much diversity in that industry, and in the pitching industry, as I have. I have a history of being active from the uh, engine rooms to the boardrooms, and all across Canada, the United States, Europe, and Asia, and uh, in government and in representative association, retail, wholesale, and product, and market development. So I don't think anybody would have it, although I wasn't there representing any particular group. Patty, by may I may, I first of all want to compliment Minister Joyce Murray. Uh, she's given me something that uh, i've waited 37 years to happen since the release of the most royal commission in 1985 by john by uh, john crosby on behalf of the federal government i've waited for the government of canada to bring the industry participants and stakeholders directing minds together like happened in the last couple of days not only that she did have the other member, the other members of Parliament for the Liberal Party, all six of them, and uh, and Mr. Uh, Clifford Small from the Progressive Conservative, as well as an assortment of uh, people uh, from the province. So, uh, a compliment to her, kudos to her. It was carried off well. I know the media is not too happy about not being in it, but um, it uh, there was an air of positivity, an air of togetherness on a patty. Uh, I did take advantage of the opportunity to well before I go there, I want to say the uh, the summit was equally as important as to was who was not there, Patty. Not present in any meaningful form. Patty do I have you ever lost Oh you? I'm I'm
1: just listening.
6: Okay.
12: Not present in any meaningful form were the Association of Fish Processors. Now they're the prime at Karina was there, but they're they they're a ceiling entity. The association of fish processors, of processing companies, are the prime beneficiaries of the ocean, of the of the birth of the ocean, and they should be there and up front and actively participating and actively funding in what's going on for sustainable, wise use of this resource. So they weren't there in any meaningful way. The province of Newfoundland, the minister was there, although he didn't speak. He did, I believe, at a reception they had. And once again, it was talking about his heart feelings and his youth as a to thing. But you got to bear in mind that the province of Newfoundland had nobody there, Patty. They have no program, no plan, no project. It's a footnote in the department of such an important issue of that resource and what it's doing to the um, to the diversity of the ocean and the, the illness created the province is a bit of an embarrassment in that it uh, but wasn't the it wasn't really the minister
1: wasn't in attendance
12: the, the minister was there the minister to my knowledge unless he spoke when i was out of the room briefly i understand that he was there but he was very quiet uh, and uh, nobody from my age that i've seen i stand to be corrected Spoke on behalf of the province, Patty. Nobody did. Uh, the, uh, the minister, I think, spoke at a uh, little grub up that they had uh, at one of the local hotels after the first evening's meetings. There, and that's all very good, but uh, a lot of people don't go to grub ups. I'm one of them, you know. So the uh, my point is is that the. The province is noticeably absent in this. It doesn't do anything proactively, and it's so important to the fishing industry and coastal people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Patty, I took advantage of the uh, of the occasion to apologize for the, what happened to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, not only Labrador in that area, and, but of Canada in the um follow-up to the Malouf Royal Commission on Seals and Sealing in Canada. The uh, federal government at that point in time isolated the, the Aboriginal community, the Indigenous community, who were really hurt badly by these protest movements that were going on. They isolated them for many direct benefits that Malouf had made the recommendation, I think some forty-five millions of dollars. And, uh, and uh, and they were, they were treated as pariahs and the, and the issue isolated in small, a couple of small bays, White Bay, Notre Dame Bay, Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, we knew what was going on. The province knew what was going on. I was a director. I was responsible for overseeing the province's commitment to seals and sealing in Canada from the Milliferal Commission and it was an embarrassment and I was ashamed and it was the first opportunity that I had for myself not for the government of Disneyland and Labrador to apologize for any role I had that uh, allowed them to be isolated where like they were. So it was a, it was a very uh, meeting. I guess now it's like Ryan Cleary said, Patty, where do we go from here? I've seen any number of conferences, but where do we go from here, Patty? It's a, a trade issue. They had a couple of minor officials from, uh, from Global Affairs Canada were there they're the big issue. We've got product, an abundance of product, huge amount of product seals. We've got products developed from them. There's no doubt about that. We have meat, oil, uh, blubbers, pelts, fur, any number of medicinal things, all kinds of them. And uh, we've got all of that tremendous, you know, resource and nowhere to sell it.
1: Well, that's the issue for me, Mike, is I don't know. Like, when you go to these types of affairs, there's got to be hopeful outcome goals that can be measured. I'm not even sure what they are here. So unless you can find more people to buy the product, then the conversation is just a circular one and exercise in futility. So what was the even hope of the summit is a question that I even posed to the minister. And I don't know if anyone's really answered that question for me. I think that's a good place to start because if it's simply talking about, you know, the need for more science or for innovation regarding the market or innovation regarding the product, that's all fine, but unless there's someone buying it, then we're just having talks and gatherings and grow ups for the sake of.
12: Well, this particular uh, summit did, uh, (coughs) excuse me for my coffin there. This summit did highlight and did underline uh, the impotence of uh, seal science in Newfoundland and Labrador. That the uh, that the the uh, seal section, the science section of DFO, and these are my words. These are not the minister's. Obviously, they're not useless. They're less than useless in the findings about you know they model things. They don't. I mean, everybody, ask anybody standing on a wharf uh, along the northeast coast, along White Bay, along any of the bays, even up the Salmon Rivers, What seals eating? And so I think the uh, I think it brought home to all our MPs. They were all in the room. It brought that benefit together. It highlighted, but it certainly brought out that there was a huge problem in what the government of Canada was not doing and what it was doing. It, it highlighted to everybody there, and there were some very capable people, there 100, I don't know, 130 or 50, I guess, uh, in terms of product market development. But, Patty, they all said the same thing. We got nothing what you just said. It doesn't make any difference. We can develop products from God on the seal, but we've got nowhere to sell them. And they're the fake trade barriers of the European Union, um, of the United States, and recently in Asia. And, and really the token, just token, almost meaningless efforts by uh, Global Affairs Canada and the government of Canada to doing anything about it. And now we see a new group moving in. There's a new group of uh, animal rights protesters in the white coat, I'll call them, uh, clothing into the environmental aspect of it. We have a thing called COP, Coalition of Parties Under the U.N., meeting in Montreal in December 7th and 8th, and they're trying to bring a ban into more species, and they're using seal science as a justification for it. In this science summit, it was admitted and recognized, and I felt the minister recognized, that this is inadequate. The science is just doesn't... It it doesn't correlate to what's going on in the real world. So that was there. But, Patty, there was nothing there on on markets, no money, no financial commitments, a couple of things on science. You're right. It was woefully deficient in that. But now, this is the first time I think that any of all of these participants from across Canada, Aboriginal, -Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, CRAFT, all of the areas came together. I've never seen that in 37 years. And I hope... A momentum, uh, a, a, a moving ahead comes to uh, to you know get money involved from within ourselves, and and the federal government. They're responsible for this, and and move ahead. Well I mean I
1: I don't know how the fight back or the pushback really looks because just think about it. If I'm traveling to the United States from Canada and I have a seal skin purse, they take it from me. What does that have to do with anything? It's just ludicrous. You know, the decision made at the World Trade Organization regarding the ban of SEAL imports was based on nothing. So at the exact same time where they made that pathetic decision based on absolute disinformation campaigns, all the while the countries that they're trying to uh, quote-unquote protect, is uh, producing foie gras. And you can go to Barcelona and go to a bullfight, but all of a sudden you can't import an omega-3 oil from a seal because someone showed you a video of red blood on white ice? Like, it just it's when it's based on nothing as flimsy as that evidence, how do you even fight back? We can talk about the humane, well-regulated seal harvest in this province until we're blue in the face. The folks who have made those decisions, they have fallen prey to what is an emotional Talk on their heartstrings versus pragmatic data that they can sink their teeth into and make a decision based on facts, not on nonsense, be based on reality, not lies.
12: Patty, may I ask you? I'm going to turn the tables on you a bit. Sure. How do you think we can fight back?
1: I I don't know. And that's why I put the question out there, because unless you do it on the heels of decisions, here we are years beyond the World Trade Organization decision. How can that possibly be influenced to be overturned? If, for instance, there was an immediate appeal that brought forward Every single piece of data, historical and modern day, about what the hunt once looked like, what it means today, the products that are created, the market for said products, maybe a trade decision can be made as opposed to an emotional decision. So the short answer is, Mike, I just don't know. I think we're so far down the road on this one that we might be spinning our wheels forever. The outcome will be very likely little expansion of market and a decision based on cod and forage fish recovery crab and otherwise and the, kind of the the diet of seals versus where we're going to sell any of the seals i mean that's where i think we're going i think that's where we've been headed for decades
12: yeah i i, I there's a lot of merit in what you're saying patty i uh, i'm not ready uh, really to um to give up on this, to say the war is over. Part of that war is over. We've lost the image war. But the big weakness we've had is we've had the ammunition to use, we just haven't brought it into the SEAL war. We, You know, the a big problem and i think our members of parliament were highlighted in this yesterday i think it was a great learning experience actually for of the people like yvonne jones know and goody know and you know they're they're very up to date on i spoke to yvonne jones highly intelligent knowledgeable about what's going on but the big issues that we have had and we haven't brought anything to bear in it's international trade we've had multiple deals uh, uh, with the United States and trade agreements, and this is not even on the table because somebody might get upset about it. We had the uh, Chancellor of Germany here begging, really, they're not coming over here because they like us. They're coming over here because they want our energy. And there's nothing that's not mentioned. Oh, God, we don't want to talk about that. And So, yeah, we we do need uh, a profile on this. But until we make some politician's feet well, they had an opportunity yesterday, Paddy, to come together and this. I thank Minister Murray for that. But they all sat there, all six of them, and then the seventh. They all sat there in that room. And if anybody didn't realize the big problems of barriers and trade barriers, they're a complete idiot, then they shouldn't be in government. So will we make them keep going? I don't know. This is up to the Union, and it's up to others, unless the Union, you know, just goes, back and goes to sleep on it. I don't know. Interestingly, in Newfoundland. It's embarrassing.
1: you might have been in the the, the the SEAL Summit Rome when I had Minister Murray yeah. on yesterday. I asked her directly that we have used fish, a variety, a variety of species, as a diplomatic tool, a bargaining chip. And so I said to her, given things like the fact that we've got this MOU or Declaration of Intense signed with Germany for green hydrogen, does that not present an opportunity to get something back because we seem to be just giving. We're not getting much in return. There may indeed have been opening markets for Canadian wheat or, or Canadian oil, but with the renewable, that is the fishery, isn't it time to get something back for products that we ship uh, uh, abroad? And she didn't really have an answer to it, but the, you know, whether it be at the seated negotiating table or with this green hydrogen, how could we possibly not have an opportunity to open up some markets? It's fine to reduce tariffs and all those things, but it's very different to r- reduce a tariff or abolish a tariff Versus reopen a market to a product that the world does indeed want, whether or not they know it.
12: Oh well, yeah, they, they, they certainly did, Penny. It's very. I'm sorry I missed uh, any interview you did on that. I hope we'll be on later today. Uh, but the uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think Minister Murray's uh, heart and head are in the right place. I applaud her. I don't know how far she's going to get with it, but Patty, as I said to the minister, and I said when I spoke on the floor yesterday. I hope she survives. I hope she stays as the minister, but yeah I hope that she stays you know that the government stays but Patty, when she goes out the door another one comes in, the bureaucracy continues on what it what it's been doing for at least 35, 37 years that I'm aware of, and nothing will change. So I hope we make hay while that sun shines and we catch those fish while they're, you know, while there's an abundance of them to, to make something happen here. But um, I'm very much afraid that uh, this will just die off. Appreciate Patty, it's been wonderful speaking to you.
1: Appreciate Thank the time, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for your take time. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. So, uh, go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Ooh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Joanne, you're on the air.
11: Hi, Patty. How are
1: you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing?
11: I'm not. T- I- I'm doing all right, but uh, uh, I'm not that good. My sister just passed. She was my best friend, and I want to tell you how good our hospital workers are. Now, Patty, I'm being sarcastic. Okay? She went to the hospital in an the ambulance. Uh, they uh, she had the ammonia in one lung. She had a little blockage in her heart. They tested her for COVID. They gave her a pill and a puffer, and she wanted to stay. She knew she wasn't well, and they sent her home. They never even checked her out for any of this, Patty. All, they don't care anymore, Patty. They don't. You've got to take care of your own. Those hospital workers, I mean, if I was a nurse, that's my profession. I'm not worried. I'm worried about saving people and taking care of people, right? But today there is nothing there. It's only a job. They don't even do anything for now. I got to bury my sister. She was only sixty-four years old.
1: Uh, Joanne, right off the bat, I'm really sorry to hear of your loss. And so, yeah. when she went to the hospital, she went in because she was feeling what? And what were you she hoping would be done? Like, uh, just tell us a little bit about what happened. Agree.
11: Patty, she couldn't breathe. Uh, 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 she, she, she called the nine one one herself and went to the hospital. I had to go down twelve o'clock that night, one o'clock in the morning, and pick her up. She wasn't well. They wouldn't keep her. She came home, and she wasn't. She was sick, like, and she was, and, uh, and next thing I know, she, she passed. And that's what was wrong with her. And she was there. They had her there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I I just don't understand the ammonia. You know, this day and age dying of the ammonia when there's all this kind of help out. They you for COVID, nothing on your way, right? On the yeah. I had a son who died five years ago, okay? okay. I got him to the hospital. He had blood clots. okay? They had him up on ICU for two nights. They put him up on ward four. You know something? He passed away that, that, that night. They didn't even know how to get a hold of me next to kin because they were listen, My son was 33, so he was an adult. But he, he lived with me, right? Now, this was five years ago, Betty. I mean, I'm over that now. Uh, I know what the hospitals are like, OK? I've been there two or three times. And I mean, my sister, there was no need. No need. Just ordinary people like Kostla should go into them hospitals and take care of them people that's in there. Because the nurses and doctors, they don't care. Unless it was their mother or their sister. They don't care about you. They don't care about me. Okay? We're just going to die off like my sister did. Well,
1: yeah. it's hard for me you to say anything to somebody. that uh, because I'd like to think that the healthcare professionals that I have to go see, because I'm lucky enough, I just got yeah. a family doctor for the first time since yeah. I returned, back to the province and I like to care that she does she does care she happens to be a woman I hope she does yeah, care I think I'm she not does I'm talking
11: about um, I got a doctor too but if I went to the hospital my doctor's like oh no I'm probably dead you know they don't they don't I got a doctor I didn't know my doctor today mm-hmm. my sister never had a doctor because she couldn't get one okay but like uh, I have I've been through a patty. These past couple of years. It's only a job to 'em. They don't want they don't want to have nothing to do with ya. Send ya you on your way. They gave her one pill, Patty, a puffer. And I had to go over there and she asked them, she said, I'm not well enough. She said, I need to stay and they said, No, you can't stay. You gotta go home. Yeah, and she was sick. Yeah, I know. But I just want to get my word out there.
1: Well, I'm glad you did, as sad as it is. And I'm really sorry to hear your sister and your best friend is gone.
11: Yeah, I'm going to take care of her. Don't you worry. I bet you will. But uh, I just want to let you know the health system that we got out there. We should have our candy scrapers back. Years ago, we had candy stripers, went to the hospital and took care of you. Why did they take them out? Why did they they take all them out? Because that was our own people that cared about each other and took care of each other. But today, Patty, no. No, we're on our own. Yeah.
1: I wish you well, Joanne. Once again, I'm yeah, really sorry. Thank
11: you. Take good care. Uh, I'm glad I got it out, Patty. I'm glad and you thank did, too. you. You do have a good day.
1: You, too bye All right, bye-bye. Uh, final break of the morning and the week. When we come back, Sean's there to talk the cost of fuel. And then we're going out to talk about what's happening at the Placentia Area Historical Society, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away.
0: Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. We didn't
13: uh, have much time the other day, so I was talking about the issue of the... Uh, of fuel and the pricing and all that, and we we're talking about people just willfully idling out there while it's eighteen degrees or sixteen degrees outside now it 's not that today, but um you know there are there are uh, uh, no, no idling signs outside schools and buildings all over the place, but I don't think people really pay much attention to them and i and with the price of fuel where it is, i'm very surprised that people aren't aren't saying, look, this fuel is very expensive, I think I'll just turn off the vehicle, wear a pair of mitts an extra pair of socks or something like that. Um, it is causing, when you have 1.3 million, sorry, 1.3 billion uh, vehicles, you know, around the planet of every kind, and most of them, I like think 99% of them, they're still fossil-fueled. It's no wonder we have the storms we have and the global warming we have and yet a lot of people feel that their, their little bit doesn't matter. But that's not the case. Everybody contributes to it. And uh, I'm going to recommend that if you're concerned about the price of fuel, and that's the only reason you turn it off, not the fact that, that your emissions are getting into buildings and schools, especially if you're waiting outside schools, and, that, and, the, and the fumes are dragged in by the air systems, I think, you know, turn off your vehicle for that 10 minutes. You know, it's only 10 minutes. The car is not cold. It's been warmed up while you're driving. Okay. Second thing, Mike Keel. Really good really good discussion to have with Mike Keel. Years ago, I was with Carnation Inc. I was the original manager in Newfoundland. And we used to send product, all kinds of product, powdered product, over to uh, Algeria. And there were large warehouses over there uh, managed by CETA, the Canadian Export Development Association. And that food went over into Africa and, and other places where there were famines or... They were having a hard time with uh, with drought and so on, and we've never had a tougher time than right now, uh, all over the world, especially those in places like that where they just they they have to go into camps and hoping that that someone would be kind enough to put some food in front of them. But we've got an ocean of food out there that is destroying the you know our fishing industry, namely the seal. And um, and if we took that seal and we powdered it, and you know, we turned, we kind of like incinerated it, or we took pieces of it and we added things that that the diets could could handle in these areas because they don't have the same diet or stomach uh, capabilities we do, like like adding different uh, like items to to lessen the intensity of seal meat and canned it, which is basically what we used to do back in the carnation days, and offered that uh, through CETA. We would solve two big problems, you know, well, not solve them all, but, but get on a good track to it. Number one, the issue of the large seal population off our coast. That's hurting our fishing industry tremendously. And it would help with the, uh, with the starvation issues uh, in these countries. So I look out now from my, from my home out here in Bellevue, and I see a lake full of water. They don't have anything like that in a lot of these areas in Africa, and I know that uh, just beyond my, my my view out in the, out in the Trinity Bay, and I saw the seals here the summer and the fall. I mean, we have all that out there. So we have so much that we can offer these places, and we really should be doing it. And I don't know why we aren't. Wow.
1: But how does that work, realistically? So we do it, we harvest the seal, we uh, create the product, canned or otherwise, and then we do what? Well, it's sold through CETA. So CETA will give you market value uh, for the product. Yeah, but they'll only and give that you market value if they have a, a customer at the end, right? Well,
13: I mean, the biggest customer at the end there are these places over in Africa where I'm talking about. I mean, we, uh, we contribute a lot, but we don't contribute the food, like in this case, so we used to send the product right out of Aylmer Quebec, right over to Algiers, and then it was distributed by the different aid aid groups into places that are having the hardest time with with uh, with issues like drought and and lack of food and starvation. We should be doing that. This is the most important time in the world's history in these places because of how devastating the climate change is happening to those. Those countries that aren't causing this, we're the ones, the United States, Russia, Canada, we're, we're all the ones that are causing it. It's not their fault that they have the issues of drought that they have.
1: Okay. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I don't, I just don't know the moving parts that need to be aligned for that to be the play. So that's all well, I'm saying.
13: Manufacturing, is- like, like if I look at Ants Harbor, and the company down there that was manufacturing for years and putting products in the on the store shelves across the country, uh, crab, crab stuff, uh, crabble gratin, and all that. we just take the same attitude towards steel. We bring it in. We use every single part of it. When I listened to Joyce Murray yesterday, the minister, she was dead on. She said, we had to be using every single part of every fish we get. Well, all you got to do is stand by any shoreline in Newfoundland. You can see we're not uh, utilizing the entire cod. Some people just just take the fillet and dump the rest of it in the ocean, and you're talking about really good food so and we're just dumping it i mean it's terrible and the same goes for the seals i mean there are seals out there practically starving and it's because there are so many of them so if we were to harvest them the same as we would do making crab or gratin if you will we just had to make it in a way that would meet the stomach and the, the the intestines of the people over in these countries they just couldn't eat pure seal meat it would have to be uh, be tempered down but that's what oats are for and other things are for so we can so we make up uh, when we get to our college north Atlantic to come up with a with a product from seal. I'm sure they've already done it and uh, and lessen the intensity of it. And then we manufacture it here, and then we ship it in the CETA, and it goes over to their warehouses. And the food agencies around the world can utilize it for the for the benefit of these poor starving kids that you and I see on our TV a lot of nights, uh, where there are well known people like Mike Holmes and others over there pleading for people to send money, but more importantly, we could send food and really good you know, healthy food and rich food.
1: Fair enough, Sean. appreciate the time again this morning. Thanks for this. Hope you have a great weekend. My pleasure. Have
13: a good weekend yourself.
1: You too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Appreciate the patience, Tom O'Keefe. You're there. You're next. Talk about the Placentia Area Historical Society. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Tom O'Keefe. You're on the air.
14: Thank you, Patty. I'm calling about the Historical Society. We had a... um, lecture planned for this uh, Saturday by Arthur Darrell Duke but because of the uh, w- weather we decided to move it to Sunday afternoon at 1pm that's in the St. Luke Cultural Heritage Centre in Placentia admission is free and uh, of course donations are welcome to help renovate St. Luke's which is a story in itself
1: and so what's the focus of the presentation Tom? Sorry, say that again. What's the focus of the presentation?
14: It's a lecture by Daryl Duke, who's an author and has written several books which refer are based on the history of Argentine Placentia, so I'm sure he'll be going into those and telling us some of that history.
1: The one-time French capital of the province, Placence.
14: That's right. Right. And people don't realise that, but... Uh, we were, in fact, this um, graveyard. Well, where it's uh, St. Luke's is, it used to be an Anglican church before we took it over when it closed up a couple of years ago. But that's in a, a graveyard in Placentia, and it's probably the oldest graveyard in North America. Certainly in Newfoundland, for sure. Beyond the the uh, native graveyards, of course. So it has quite a history. St. Luke's was closed two years ago because their parishioners were too small to be able to keep it up, so they turned it over to us. And we're doing, like, these lectures by Daryl Duke. We're having a series of lectures, and uh, that's to help raise money to be able to maintain the church and keep it as it was.
1: It sounds good. Give the folks the details about you've moved the, uh, the lecture or, pardon me, the presentation to Sunday, right, at St. That's Luke's? Sunday at,
14: at 1 p.m. in, in okay. St. Luke's.
1: Sounds good, Tom. Good luck with it, and thanks for this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Okay, how are you doing? Good, thank you. I
15: was listening to your callers. You're talking about the seal hunt. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I'm originally from Newfoundland. I'm calling from Ontario. And I think maybe you have to put some, uh, the people who are looking at harvesting the seals are control.
1: I'm sorry, you were breaking up there. You have to look at the people harvesting the seals and what, sorry? (laughs)
15: Well, the uh, people that are harvesting the seals, they need to put some kind of environmental spin on it, all right? Because times have changed. The days of getting out and hitting the seal over the head with a stick, with a nail in it called the hack-a-pick. Doesn't play well in central Canada. It's a much different society.
1: Well, it's because it doesn't happen, though. That's the important fact that we need to include.
15: Okay, good. How are they harvested now?
1: Well, there's a variety of ways, and generally it's a shotgun to the head. There's no hack-a-picks yeah. anymore. We don't h- hunt white coats anymore. That's, you know, those are yeah. the things that have been depicted that have convinced people that it's a barbaric practice when there's federal monitors, it's well-regulated. We've figured out that things like the hack-a-picking, co- hunting the white coats, was not appropriate, and so it stopped.
15: Yeah, Great. That's good to hear. But, you know, you might want to look at Churchill, Manitoba. They've made millions of dollars with the polar bears they use them for tourist attractions
1: and I'm sorry what's the relationship between that and the seals pardon me
15: seals eat polar bears, or polar bears eat seals right? and the ice is shrinking up north so you may want to create some kind of a preserve for polar bears and uh, use the seals as uh, as uh, food for the polar bears
1: we're not going to run out of
15: seals no not yet well you know back in 1497 no one said New was going to run out of cod as well and we'll see where that went
1: yeah, there's a variety of factors there. I think that's a pretty oversimplified <laughs> comment to make about the strength of the codstock. Um, but I don't even know what a a conservation area for polar bears looks like. When we're talking about less sea ice, has really jeopardized the polar bear uh, to begin with in this neck of the woods. And I would imagine throughout the world's north. So I just don't know how that looks or works. But running out of seals seems like a highly, highly unlikely issue. The biggest risk that they probably face is disease amongst the herd itself, given the numbers.
15: Yes, yes, but you know, what you had to remember is that the Prime Minister's former advisor was the head of the World Wildlife Fund, Gerald Butts. So the people in Ottawa look at the seal hunt and everything through an environmental perspective. And if you put a proposal forward to you know, use the seals to save the polar bears, and Canada has 25% of the world's polar bear population, and I'm not an environmentalist by any means, and I'm not affiliated with any environmental movement, but uh, you may get more money there than going out and shooting the seal and, and skinning the seal and selling the seal for meat. There's a, there's a different way of looking at it, and times have changed.
1: If it was up to me and I had any say in the matter, the primary product that I would be looking to and pointing at and trying to sell would be the very unique and healthy omega-3 oil that the seal has because yes. the world would probably be open up to that because it's in demand it's in vogue and so if we don't talk about that we're then going to continue to focus on meat which for the most part for many many people it's unappetizing uh the prestigious nature of wearing fur has of course been damaged over the or diminished over the last number of decades so you know i think we utilize our product as best we can but that omega-3 oil that sounds like the right place to start
15: that may be but here's what you're up against in ontario there's marine land every kid has been to marine land watching a seal play with the ball on his nose all right i've taken my kids down there so i mean you can't be seen as harvesting the seals and using every part of the seal people in the rest of canada particularly ontario and quebec don't see the world that way so what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take the seals, feed them to something else, do it in the name of environmentalism, and you'd probably make make a good industry out of it. You, you might but be you able to, in, right? You know that may be something you want to look at because you know, let me tell you, there, I don't think there's much market for seal meat out here. People would they view it the same as horse meat or something like that, unless you're going to sell it to France and this bit of selling it to Algeria or somewhere overseas. I've heard that forty years ago.
1: Yeah, me too. That's dubious at that
15: best. It Hasn't <laughs> happened yet, but I mean, hey, if you want to take the seals, move them north. Hey, you know the government's in, the government is into saving the whales, saving the seals, saving the polar bears, and uh, you may be onto something there. You may be able to to solve a problem for your for, for Newfoundland and Labrador because you know seals do eat cod. I know when Liola Hearn was in as Minister of Fisheries, he was very interested in finding the science, the link between seals. And uh, the cod stocks and the people who worked with him at the, the Department of Fisheries here in Ottawa, they viewed him very favorably. All right, So that's been around for close to 20 years, this whole bit of trying to find link to science, to the cod and the seals, but it hasn't gone anywhere. So you may want to put a different spin on it and you may be able to create more jobs and God knows Newfoundlanders have enough uh, connections with none of it and uh, those territories up there in terms of construction jobs. There's a long history.
1: Yeah, right. that's true. I mean, a new spin is obviously required. No uh, no argument yeah. coming on that front. But, you know, insofar as we've gone to sea land and we played with the seals and that consequently has leapt it or is in the minds of young Canadians, for instance. But I would yeah. also suggest, you know, we go to a petting farm and you see the cows, but you love a burger. You've seen the pigs, but you don't mind having to feed a ham on the weekend. I think we've also had the, the psyche interrupted based on the relentless campaigns that are strictly full of disinformation because we see animals yeah. everywhere. You know, you, you yeah. see the chickens, you think that's cool in someone's backyard homesteading operation. You had eggs for breakfast tomorrow morning, no problem.
15: Yes, but, you know, when you ask most kids up here, where does milk come from, they'll tell you the corner store. They don't make the connection between the steak on the plate and the cow in the field. Yeah. But when you get uh, you get organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, they got 16- and 17-year-old kids down on Spark Street, which is one street from Parliament Hill, with a clipboard taking donations for the World Wildlife Fund because they're killing the seals. You want to stop the seal hunt. They're murdering them. You know, that they make the connection. So the days of harvesting those those mammals, I guess they're mammals, eh?
1: Seals, Seals, yeah, and uh,
15: yeah. So yeah, those those days are those days <laughs> may be over. So you may just want to take them and, and carry him somewhere north and and make a tourist attraction out of them. And right now, they, and get feed into the green economy because right now the government's all about green,
1: right? That they are, although they talk a big green game, maybe not walk a big green game. But I suppose no, that's if the, talk, if the talk is there, the money's there, right? Generally, yep.
15: Yeah. And, and there, there's lots of money in all or something.
1: I really appreciate the time all the way from uh, Ontario this morning. Hope you have a great weekend. Oh, sir, one more thing. Okay, quick.
15: If you are, uh if Newfoundland is going to be uh, doing any more mega projects like a uh, lot did Churchill Falls, it subsidized Quebec. It did Muskrat Falls? It did Nova Scotia. Can you put us on the wait list for your next project, if not the one afterwards? Because we'd love to have some cheap power up
1: here. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'll put it on somebody's list. (laughs) I appreciate it, Paddy. Thanks, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, and just another reminder, Open Line will not be on tomorrow morning. Brian O'Connell is going to bring you a special Remembrance Day program in our slot. And good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.